Hello, and welcome to Adventurous Polyamory, the podcast where we rip the shrink wrap off of non-monogamy and get into the messy reality of our lifestyle. I'm Rachel Barth, your hostess with the mostest, and I'm here to open up a big old can of truth and honesty about the joys and pitfalls of polyamory. I was driving around in my car listening to the radio, because I'm old and still listen to live radio, and an advertisement for Asbury Methodist Village came on. Asbury, for those of you not in the D.C. area, is a retirement community offering options from assisted living all the way up through more serious nursing care. This ad focused on all the things that Asbury does to provide stimulation and fun for its residents, such as dance classes, a rock climbing wall, forest bathing, and a fitness class that combines video gaming. Like the Wii used to be, I guess. This ad was like a mini-seminar, a little lecture on how it is excellent for brain health to experience novelty and learn new things. And naturally, it got me to thinking. I know that the other day we just talked about some good reasons to not be polyamorous, but Asbury Methodist Village made a pretty compelling case for some reasons that polyamory is good for us. I mean, actually, physically good for us. Polyamory is good for your health in lots of ways. I'm dead serious about this. Obviously, I am not a scientist, so all I'm doing is looking at the work that others have done. But the applications seem quite clear. So, the body is parsimonious, stingy. Any part that you don't use much, it will take resources away from there. So, for instance, we have assumed that age automatically causes muscle loss. Turns out that is not really accurate. Elderly athletes have plenty of muscle. Triathletes run the Kona Ironman well into their 80s. The real culprit is the body's normal manner of moving resources away from underused parts. If you don't use your muscles, the body will simply shrink them. This is why it's so bad for older people when they break a limb. The longer they stay in bed, the more the body simply transfers resources away from their muscles. So while the body is healing up the break in your hip, it's also sucking muscle mass away from your lower body overall. Now you're at an even more serious disadvantage. The body automatically strengthens bones which bear a heavier load. But since you're less strong now and maybe even thinner too, you might not walk as much. You're not putting as much load on your bones and so the body won't feel any need to strengthen your bones all that much. So now you're much more likely to break another bone since you're also a lot weaker in your legs in general now. The body is just stingy with resources. Guess what? It will even do the same thing to your brain. If you don't keep your brain working, it will weaken. As we age, we lose brain plasticity, or we might. The nature of polyamorous life is a constant stream of new people and situations, which encourages the brain 
to keep working hard at learning. When you date new people, inevitably you go new places, eat new food, listen to new music. If you really get lively and throw in a foreign language or a musical instrument, it's a beautiful way to maintain brain function. We also know that it's important for humans to belong to a tribe, a group. People who are alone too much are more likely to have mental illness like depression or anxiety. This was fully on display during the last few years, wasn't it? Being alone day after day was absolute torture for so many of us. We sought mental health help in record numbers. Any human contact was treasured. I think this truth was really laid bare for everyone. We need to be together with people. Maybe not constantly, maybe not all the time, but we need it in order to stay healthy mentally. We know that people who are lonely tend to die sooner than people with a good social life. The people who live the longest have very strong social ties and active social lives. They're part of a community. Polyamory is perfect for this. We go to munches, we go to Skillshares and discussion groups, or at least we did before COVID, and I trust we shall do so again. It's like church, but without all the commandments and the anxiety about sin. Notice that these benefits accrue simply from the lovely human act of being together. So, by choosing to have multiple partners, you are also choosing better brain health and better mental health. But this is already amazing. The richer social life that polyamory offers is a simple and effective key to better mental health, better brain health, and a longer life. There's whole books about this research, y'all. The places where the most people live to be over 100 years old are called blue zones, and they are all over the world. They don't have the same diet or lifestyle overall, but they share a trait of strong social involvement. I will include in the show notes a couple of articles about the oldest women alive. Both of them continued to work and stay involved in their communities until they were quite elderly. One of them is a nun. So we see that sex doesn't really need to be a part of longevity. However, if you should choose to continue to be sexual, there are a number of fine gifts to access there as well. Continued sexual activity is good for both men and women on a basic physical level. Again, it's another example of that thing where the body conserves resources. We could call it the use it or lose it rule. After menopause, okay, hear me out, a healthy woman could have more than a third of her life ahead after menopause. It's not a trivial thing at all. After menopause, the tissues of the vaginal wall thin down a bit and the whole vagina can begin to atrophy. Because the body is like, meh, we're never using this old thing again, are we? Unless you do, in fact, use it plenty. In that case, the vagina stays nice and healthy. Proper and frequent use of your vagina is good in so many ways. It helps avoid stress incontinence, for instance. Sexually active women have stronger pelvic floor muscles. A busy vagina is a happy vagina. 
Now, I touched on this in a previous episode, but for a comprehensive discussion of the relationship between the vagina and the brain and the associated effects on your mental health, I highly, highly recommend Naomi Wolf's book, cleverly titled Vagina. The basic takeaway is a happy vagina is very good for you. Now, technically, you don't have to be polyamorous to have a happy and active vagina. But, especially as we get a bit older, it's easier with a variety of partners. We often see women have a rise in sex drive in midlife, while men seem to generally be on a decline. I guess it takes a village, y'all. We theorize that women experience a rise in sex drive when their overall level of estrogen begins to decline. At that point, their normal amount of testosterone suddenly makes a bigger effect on them. Meanwhile, it's considered normal for men to have a drop in testosterone as they age. However, now we're talking about men. Here we go. Men get a very interesting benefit from non-monogamy. Turns out, it's good for their hormones. Harvard professor Dr. Joseph Henrich wrote a very deep book called The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. Evolutionary psychology is so fashionable these days. But if you lay off trying to use it just to justify dumb theories in the manosphere, it turns out there's a lot to find out. So, you know how everyone knows that men's testosterone falls as they age and that this is basically completely inevitable? Guess what? That's not necessarily true. It consistently falls for monogamous men due to a couple of reasons. When they get partnered up and then when they get involved in childcare. When they get partnered up, they withdraw from that competition for a mate and their testosterone automatically falls because testosterone rises in response to competition. And it's not complicated to understand that when you're raising children, intense aggression and ferocious competitiveness are not the right tool set. Of course, Mother Nature is going to arrange things so that people who are raising children are at least slightly less likely to commit harm against them. Okay, so where does the non-monogamy come in? Henrik talks a lot about the cultural changes brought about by the widespread adoption of monogamy. His aim there is pointing out that this created a society wherein men were less aggressive, less competitive, and more cooperative, making a peaceful and prosperous society much easier to maintain. Yeah, as it turns out, marriage really is the foundation of society. In a traditional tribal setup, you're probably looking at polygyny, or what we'd call one-penis polyamory these days. This setup is bad for most men, because high-status men basically hog up all the women. It can be good for women, though, because they have greater freedom to select a man who looks like a good bet to keep her safe and well-supported. So, a woman might be quite pleased to choose a chief with eight other wives. She could see clearly that this guy's got what it takes. But this might mean, essentially, that there's eight guys out there who don't get a girl. So, low-status guys 
and usually younger guys, have much worse odds, and that makes them very aggressive. Because why? Because testosterone rises in response to competition. In general, we find that having a large pool of very aggressive men wandering around loose gets to be disruptive. Back in the day, we would just send them all off to be cannon fodder somewhere, like the Crusades or the entire career of Alexander the Great. But nowadays, we have incels. I'm theorizing that incels tend to actually have lower testosterone because their life view is that the competition is already over, and it has been won by that shitbag Chad and his artificially whitened teeth, and that they themselves have no chance of ever winning. They are not even trying to compete. And so their testosterone is probably falling. Boy, I hope someone does that research one of these days. I would read that book. Monogamy improves on this by making it much better for men. Even low-status guys have much better chances here. However, it's not necessarily better for women, since, as we see even today, a woman won't go for a lesser fellow if she can bag a chief. There is much grumbling about this on the internet. But it's just fact. So, monogamy settles down more men, and once they're settled, their testosterone drops, and then it will drop once again when they have children. But the underlying science is kind of wild. It turns out that non-monogamous men don't experience such a great drop in testosterone. In fact, high-status men who manage to keep being successfully competitive may even experience elevated testosterone. Yes, you heard it here, folks. Men's testosterone normally rises in preparation for competition. Continued competition for mates will keep men's testosterone higher. Don't get too crazy, though. All that extra test won't do you any good if your arteries are so clogged you can barely amble to the kitchen from the TV room. Remember episode 12, you still have to do the work. Henrik does not discuss the effects of monogamy and non-monogamy on women's hormones. But Dr. Emily Nagoski says in her book, Come As You Are, that men and women have all the same parts organized in different ways. This is suggesting to me that ultimately we'll find that women receive a similar positive hormonal effect from maintaining mate competition. Although now I'm thinking about it, the data is actually already being studied in a different context. Yes, it turns out that women's testosterone really does rise in preparation for competition, just like men's hormones. It rises, and within a few hours it will fall again. Actually, it turns out that first, estradiol will rise, and then testosterone will rise, and later both will return to baseline. But what's even more cool is that the testosterone is converted to estradiol via a process known as aromatization. And what is estradiol? It is a form of estrogen. In fact, it is what they give you for hormone replacement therapy. So what's the theory here? This data seems to suggest that maintaining mate competition would give perimenopausal and postmenopausal women 
a boost in these two important hormones, which would substantially mitigate the negative effects associated with menopause. Because essentially, you're making your own hormone replacement therapy by getting your body to produce hormones, even though the actual egg factory has shut down as it eventually must. What's more, this effect, this hormone boost, has again to do with competition, not sexual activity. It is not necessary to be sexually active to get this boost. It's just fun. Now I'm thinking about it. Doesn't this data also suggest something further? If women's testosterone rises for the same stimulus as men's testosterone, does it also drop for the same reason? That in fact, women's testosterone would drop after marriage and then drop even more after having children? Gee, I wonder if that's why so many couples experience total bed death. If both partners experience a serious drop in their sex hormones, that's not going to be good for that side of things. We seem to need a bit of competition to bring us fully alive. Do you think maybe that's why so many poly people love game night? Because the competition causes a rise in hormones? What an interesting notion. The authors of the study cite other studies, which seem to show that this hormone boost in women will not occur unless the women truly feel the sense of competition. So it won't rise if you just set up a competition amongst your teammates, for instance. There's nothing at stake. It doesn't feel like real competing, and the body will not react to it that way. So this points to something we all know. The mind and the body are one and the same. The mind perceives the competition, and the body reacts. Well, all of this is just to say we'll be revisiting Dr. Henrik in future episodes because his book is like 400 pages, and it's a lot to digest. But back to the basic point there. Men, take hope. There is very strong data suggesting that dating polyamorously and embracing this type of mate competition will really help you stay your most vigorous self. Although, it's worth mentioning again, the hormonal boost is due to the element of competition, not the element of sex. Men's testosterone will rise in preparation for anything which they recognize as a competition. I mean, chess, bridge, dancing, whatever. You do not have to be a sexually active person to get the hormonal benefits of polyamory. As long as you feel it's a real competition, it'll still be good for you. Now, People often say variety is the spice of life. Scientists call this the Coolidge effect. Coolidge is a word that never looks right, no matter how many times you check that it's written correctly. I'll be including a fairly lengthy article about the Coolidge effect for your entertainment in the show notes. But here's the story. President and Mrs. Coolidge were touring some sort of experimental poultry farm, Mrs. Coolidge noticed a very active rooster doing his roostery business, and she asked how many times a day he did this. Oh, as much as 20 times a day, came the answer. Tell that to Mr. Coolidge, she said. The president, upon hearing this, asked, Same hen every time? Oh, no, no, different hen each time, said the tour guide. Well, you tell Mrs. Coolidge that. We don't know if this story is really true. But that's where we get the name for this very well-researched phenomenon, where both genders will show a preference for sexual novelty. 
particularly if they have full control over when the sex is happening. Yes, I said both genders. I know there's a lot of people out there who really, really want to believe that women are somehow less sexual than men and that we don't need it as much, enjoy it as much, and all that. I'm not at all sorry to say that, frankly, science does not support that fantasy. In fact, the science shows fairly clearly that your girl would happily jump on some fresh, new fun just as much as you would. Did that horrify you, gentlemen? Well, take heart. Apparently, all that competition will be good for your dick. It's a win all round. So we see that science really does support a desire or maybe even a need for sexual novelty and mate competition. We want it, and it does us a lot of good. See how good polyamory looks now? We not only have fun, but also improve both physical and mental health and live longer. The Coolidge effect is sort of the tipping point for all this stuff. You could get the benefits we've discussed here while remaining monogamous for sure. You could seek and embrace competition and get deeply involved in your community. But you'd still feel a deep-seated urge toward sexual novelty, just like a host of other mammals. So that's exactly why you might really want to be polyamorous. It satisfies the Coolidge effect and brings with it a host of mental and physical benefits. A further thought, circling back to the problem of traditional polygynous societies and the problem of the unattached men. Today, we could solve this one more easily, since a personable heterosexual woman can choose more than one mate as well. This gives a lot more men a chance at being selected, and it also relieves a lot of the pressure on men to be very high status at all times. We talked about this in more detail in the episode about the big tentpole partner. The bottom line here is sexually equal polyamory creates better opportunities for all genders. All the research I pawed through was about cisgender heterosexual people. But I think this all applies pretty well to people with fluid gender identities or non-binary identities or any sort of queer identities. Old school monogamy puts so much pressure on people to squish into certain gender roles. But if you choose to let go of monogamy, as you keep working at scrubbing those thought structures out of your mind, you'll be able to see and appreciate so many more beautiful potential partners. For a deeper discussion of which polyamorous structures worked best over the long term, I highly recommend Dr. Elizabeth Sheff's book, The Polyamorists Next Door. However, spoiler alert, she says that the MFM hinge relationship turned out to be the most stable. That gives me hope because that's my own setup. A further note, we know that statistically, men die about 10 years before women do. Since we also know that people who have a rich social life live longer, I feel like we can theorize here that a stable MFM hinge relationship structure would go a long way to keeping men who might otherwise grow old alone and die early in a safe, warm, supportive situation with better, more plentiful socializing, hence enabling them to live a little bit longer than they would otherwise. Dr. Sheff wrote that from her point of view, polyamory offered a unique way for men to be in closer contact with each other in a non-threatening, family sort of way. 
I feel like there's so much more meat on that bone, but I think I better lay off for now. So thank you for listening. If you have issues you want to hear about on this podcast, or you need advice, or you have a story to tell, or even if you just have some tea to spill, I want to hear from you. Please get in touch with me at unlimitedheartcoaching at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at unlimitedheartfreedom. As always, I am available for coaching sessions. And if you feel you could use some help, get in touch with me for a free exploratory session. I appreciate you all so very much. And I'll see you back here in a couple of weeks.